Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast by guitarists for guitarists. And now your hosts, John Brown and A.L. Levy. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. We've been running conversations with some of the best guitar players in the game for over a year now. Not only has this been amazing for myself and A.L. to learn from, but it's been amazing for us to share this vast knowledge with all of you. If you enjoy what we're doing, then please share us with your friends, and we especially love iTunes reviews. Remember that you can tag us if you want to share the podcast on your Instagram. You can find me at Brown Monuments. That's B-R-O-W-N-E-M-O-N-U-M-E-N-T-S. And you can find Al at Al Levy URM Audio. That's E-Y-A-L-L-E-V-I-U-R-M-A-U-D-I-O. Always remember that we will never charge you for this podcast. So please keep listening and enjoying. All we ask in return is a share, post, and a tag. Anyway, let's get on to this week's guest. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. Our guest today is Andy Gillian, who is a musician, producer, and composer, well known for his time in his previous band, Moore's Principium Est, as well as his recent solo material, Never After, and compositions for video games. This guy has done a lot of stuff. I hope you enjoy this episode. Here it goes. Andy Gillian, welcome to the Riff Hard Podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here, guys. Hey, Andy, how are you doing? I'm great, John. How are you doing, man? Doing all right. You guys know each other? No, not really. I mean, kind of. I know of you, of course. I'm like a big fan of you and big fan of both of you guys, really. So, <laughs> I mean, Aww. I know England's small, AL, but not everyone knows each other. We're cousins. <laughs> I was just making a do you all know each other joke. Yeah. Because people people say that shit to me all the time. It's like, I know someone from the US. This is this person's name. It's like, do you have any idea how big this place is? No, I don't know that person. But Andy, I just, okay, I wanted to start talking about what we just did together. We're, I can't say what it is on here because it hasn't been released yet. Brown, I'll tell you after. But we hired Andy to write a theme for something that's going to come out probably in the next month or two. We actually had somebody else writing a theme prior. I don't know if you know this. I didn't know that. We asked it because I thought it sucked. <laughs> I'm not trying to talk shit about this person, but this is relevant to where I'm going with this. What we needed for this was for it to have a little bit of a power metal feel, but not too much. Some of that melodic death metal feel, but not too much. And something that you could imagine at a big European festival like Vakken or something, but not so much that it would turn off American audiences. And on top of that, it needed to be perfectly loopable. It needed to be interchangeable in several ways. And so when, and you can elaborate on that, but like, so when we got the original one, first of all, the guitars were out of tune with each other. The playing was totally not tight. And it sounded like an observer's take on all of those genres. And so myself and the other person started thinking about who do we know that can pull this off? And she had mentioned you and I had heard of you. And so I just went to your Instagram and watched 15 seconds of a of some live stream you did 
I was like, cool, call this guy. <laughs> like, you could, which was interesting to me that like, when you know that someone's able to do something, you can tell instantly, there's no, no questions about it. And then when you, when we hired you and you delivered, it was exactly what I knew I was getting myself into based off of that one little Instagram clip where you're just recording something with your iPhone or whatnot. <laughs> So first of all, great work. Wow. Thank you so much. But second of all, I want to talk about how you took the brief we gave you and made it exactly what we needed. Because Riffard students, we have this thing called King of the Riff where Brown puts out this brief. You know, it could be as simple as write something, write the new James Bond theme, right? Or like this month, it's like, technical death metal challenge. Brown can elaborate on what they are, but there's always a brief and people submit according to this brief and the winner walks away with some prizes. But uh, it's a big challenge for people to actually follow directions, but then also make a cool piece of music while following those directions, which you absolutely nailed. Thanks. So I, I had no idea about that backstory, by the way. Um, I'm hoping it wasn't John Brown's first attempt that no. got fired. No, no, <laughs> and then no. Came to me. We did not ask Brown to do it because... It's not my style. Well, and you wrote, your riffing is on the theme to this podcast. Because, so yeah, we didn't want it to be like a... We didn't want it to sound like this, basically. Hmm. In terms of the question, like, how did I approach it? I, I guess I approached it exactly the same way I'd, I'd approach any songwriting, which is the, the phone comes out and I just the first thing that comes into my head is usually a pretty good indication of where I'm going with this. And this, this theme came to me straight away. And I think I'm getting better at that as I get older and mature as a composer. Um, I just feel it and just sing it into my phone. That seems to be the best way I can approach. And I seem to sing these days, everything at once. It's not just the riff. I'll hear it all at once, which scares me. Lucky bastard. (laughs) Wait a second. So are you beatboxing and playing a riff with your mouth? Listen, I'm not blast beating with my mouth and, and, and singing and all this rest at the same time, but I'm, everything comes to me at once. And the worst thing is when I record an idea on my phone, just singing. Like I, People say I sound like Jack Black because I'm kind of doing like a sort of a Jack Black thing into my phone. It sounds ridiculous. I mean, I could probably play you one now, but gee, I don't really want to do that. <laughs> but then sometimes I'll go back and I'll go, God, what, what was I even doing there? It's so ridiculous. Like I'll get so hyped up. And this thing won't even make sense to me when I come back around to listening to it. But this one thankfully did. And I don't know, I just feel like I've absorbed so much music over my life, like a sponge. You know, I did all my, my like weightlifting as a kid in terms of music, like just absorbing, listening. And I think I just really understand genres and, and music. And thankfully I'm able to, it all just goes in and it's like the Power Rangers assembling and creating this like you know, the Megatron thing or whatever. I don't know what I'm saying anymore, but yeah. <laughs> you didn't even have to sit there and intellectually think about the brief. I mean, I thought about it. I, I think about it. You thought about it, but then it just came out. It wasn't like you had to sit there and think about, well, they want it to be kind of like this. So the riff is going to be kind of like this. It's like you took it in, marinated, and then out came the music. Yeah. And it was pretty much, actually, I, I think I tell a lie. I think there was one, I think there were two ideas. And maybe it was the second idea um, that I sang into my phone. But I mean, it was done from from reading the brief. I think I had it in about 10 minutes. That's pretty quick. Yeah. Yeah. I think I just had it. And then all I'm doing then is taking the phone audio and I'm me singing like a maniac and then trying to 
yeah, just what what was that riff? Does it work? What tempo is it? Okay, what were the ideas I had with the strings and stuff? Because I think that from memory, the brief was something like kind of more leaning towards European sounding than American. So I kind of was thinking maybe Winter Sun and uh, obviously I don't want to give anything away about what the project was, as you said, but... I actually know what the project is, so you don't need to tell me. Oh, you do, right. But obviously I'm not going to say, but... I worked out what it was from his explanation. I was trying to <laughs> uh, have in mind the project and possibly if there's a person involved in that project, that person's personality in a way. So I did I did really try to bring bring out everything in the brief and you know whatever was in my mind to do specifically with that project to kind of breathe life into it like that. And I think we all... Maybe that's easy to say and it's a little bit wanky and it's a little bit, you know, pretentious sounding, but it, it works, you know, this all just comes from the heart and, and I never sit down and go, okay, let's like get the circle of fifths out and where's this theory? What should we do based on theory or anything? It's just from the heart. It just comes to me like, that's the tune. I think that works. Great. Done. A question about that, actually, would you say that you have relative pitch or perfect pitch? It's interesting because there's two ways people talk about perfect pitch. One is like, if you named me if you said B flat, could I sing you a B flat? No, I couldn't do that because I've charted notes in my own way that doesn't, like I haven't labeled that note or that frequency, that pitch as a B flat. In my mind, from being very young, growing up with music, I've labeled that with an emotion or- Okay, right, yeah. You know, so like, and, and certainly intervals between notes, um, there is a certain feeling so I will, I will feel an emotion and I will go, I can't tell you necessarily, I know a bit of theory. I mean, I'm classically trained on piano, at least I was when I was really young, but none of that theory really was, uh, well, first of all, not interesting to me. Second of all, I never, I never used it in songwriting. Songwriting always just, like I said, came from the heart, which is, again, it's easy to say. It sounds a bit, sounds a bit wanky or whatever, but it does, it just like, I go, okay, I know this song's got to go here. I feel it in my chest. I feel that emotion. Like my whole body changes. The physiology of my body changes. And I go, I know where those notes are. Bam, done. Like, I, I, that's my guide. So interval training was very important. Not training, but you understand the intervals. Yeah, and I, I, I strongly believe that moving pitch up or down, as long as the whole piece moves together, it's the, it's the gaps between the notes that really tells the story, not, yep. you know, where you start that story, if you know what I'm saying. So it's almost like all that uh, theory practice and knowledge uh, that you got when you were younger now is something that's just on an instinctual level. Like kind of knowing like what note to go to, like where that note is, like it's just in you. I would argue that that, that knowledge comes from living and breathing music rather than understanding the rules that someone wrote after the fact. You know, like I believe that someone wrote a beautiful piece of music first and then other people came along and said well we're going to label those things what do you do here you know you know like oh uh, this this person seemed to be playing a scale which is a frequency of notes which is pleasurable to us because mathematically there's you know there's there's rules that this sounds good because the waves the wavelengths kind of line up if you really want to get deep with the, the physics of it um and then people start to label those things as like a major scale or whatever and a minor scale because it sounds a bit disappointing because the third is slightly flat. And yeah, it's uh, never do I, I, I don't, less and less do I use those labels or rely upon those rules that other people have invented. And I think sometimes people can be stifled by those quick fixes or those quick, or circle of fists. Wh where do I go next? Let's paint by numbers. Let's just, there are so many chords, chord progressions 
that you're probably missing out on if you do that. And there's so many chords. I mean, you could just slam your hand on a piano and hit all kinds of notes, create beautiful dissonance that no one would ever tell you was right. There's no rules, really. That can work. There's so much you can do, which is not in the rule book. You know, so I learned theory in high school, but I never went nuts with it. Like, I didn't take it to the level some people do. I also didn't do well in math and science, so it kind of makes sense (laughs) that I wouldn't do great in theory class either. I mean, you know, I knew the basics and know the basics, but it never affected my writing. Um, So when I was writing, it was always... Like, where does this piece of music want to go? And the mu- piece of music tells you, like, you it's something you just know. Like, you know what the right note is. And I don't mean the right note on a test, on a theory test. Like, the right note for that piece of music. But what I found was that uh, oftentimes the right note, there was some sort of uh, theoretical explanation for it. However... I did end up pissing off people that I worked with who were very much theory minded when I'd write, when I'd give them a part to solo over that changed into weird keys uh, that they weren't counting on or had strange, uh, strange chord progressions that were not part of a, of a scale or key that they had uh, anticipated. But in, at the end of the day, their solos came up better and they, expanded as players but i definitely know what you're saying that that at the end of the day if you're really really writing from the heart that theory stuff more just goes to explaining what you did but you have to do it first yeah and john you were kind of nodding your head so like i I think you're on the same page with me kind of thing would that be right Yeah. yeah i i tuned my guitar all weird because I used to just follow the theory and I wasn't really writing what I would call music. It was just following what I was told. I think, you know, I've said this before in a previous podcast that I had to write an essay on why Bach did 2C51. And the only explanation that I could come up with is that he enjoyed the sound of that progression. Like I couldn't really label any other way why he would play that at the end of nearly every single piece of music. I kind of got in trouble for it because I didn't explain it. And from that point onwards, I just um, started tuning my guitar all weird and started using my ears. And as Al's already said, it's the intervals that you use between the notes that makes the music. Um, and I think you actually said that as well, Andy. Yeah, totally agree with that, you know. And and that's so interesting that you you actually took to tuning the guitar in an insane way to break out of that box you were in, you know. It helps, I think it helps uh, real you know, I don't want to say amateurs, like in a negative way, but if you're new to music, I think it helps those kind of basic rules, you learn the ropes. But then at some point, you've got to really break out of that. Otherwise, everyone's writing this. I mean, everyone is writing the same music. It's the same 12 notes. <laughs> yeah, well, that, yeah, that's <laughs> the weirdest thing for me is that, you know, when you learn theory, especially with the guitar, which I think is a uh, kind of a backwards instrument, if you compare it to something like a piano, everyone just learns the shapes of everything rather than actually listening to how it sounds. Like, you know, when people say, oh, I want to play this piece in Lydian, and then you just hear the Lydian scale up and down. It's like, you don't know how to play in Lydian. Yeah, and how much can you do with that? I mean, really, how much can you do that differs from the next person who's doing the same thing? I mean, all three of us guys could probably relate to, you know, pentatonic, sort of the, the, the basic 
blues thing that we all learned first. I learned it last. Oh, you did? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> wow. That's that so cool. That's that you are a rare breed. But to me, like, yeah, that once you learn that and maybe Ale, you're an exception to that, but I would sit in front of the TV just jamming on guitar to every commercial that would come on. Every every advert that came on TV, I would play and I would think I was the best. I mean, I was only like 10 years old, but I was just loving it. I was going for it. But all I was doing was the same licks from pentatonic minor, you know, and that is so limiting. You know, when you break out of that box, there's so much more fun to be had. The breaking out of the box thing, though, that's the tough part because it's easier said than done. I do think, though, what Brown just said about creating the, another tuning just so he would not know what was going on. I've done the same thing. Just make a tuning where you don't know what's what. And so you are forced to just find things that sound cool and that work. And A, you'll come up with stuff you never thought that you never thought possible, I guess. Uh, but uh, B, you have no choice <laughs> but to actually listen. You are broken out of the box. You're in the dark, right? You're just literally stumbling. I think that thinking outside the box is hard to just do, like, because you almost don't know what the box is that you're in because you're in it. Uh, it's hard to see when you're in it. So you have to create a situation where you have no choice. Like you are actually destroying that box and then making yourself work within that. It also gets rid of the the pattern. We as humans love pattern repetition. I'm sure everyone can relate to this. You always go to the same chords when you pick up the guitar for the first time in a while. The shapes that you like to play, make sure you can still play them. And if you tune your guitar in a weird way that you don't understand, then none of those chords work anymore. And you have to start from ground zero, which is one note at a time to build your chords. You're using the brain very differently when you are jamming in E pentatonic minor, where you know those shapes. You're almost subconsciously just, you're just playing out of second nature. Your hands are moving. You don't even know what's going on. You're, you're repeating the same things that you're used to. But then when it comes to composing or actually really improvising in terms of knowing where you want to go and going to that note that was in your head, that is a totally different game. Like, and I think Tom Quayle was, he's told me that that that's something he wanted to master was like mastering harmony completely so that he can think of an interval and in real time go to that note rather than just going, oh yeah, this is like three apart on this, these fingers. And then it goes up to three frets up. This is the shape I know. He will go, this could be 12 frets up, but I know it's there and I want it. So I'm going to go get it. Like it's such a different mentality to master. And that is terrifying at the same time. It is because <laughs> it's not it's not muscle memory anymore, is it? it you know, you're no. re you're really you're composing as you as you jam. I mean, it's, I've played with the guy on stage. I was in this guitar idol final. I think it was like 2016, and then the and, and the finalists they all got on stage to play one at a time. It was like lining up to to be slaughtered. It was really terrifying. <laughs> and they had this backing track on, and he was there jamming, and we went up one at a time, and the crowd was like going cheering and everything. Uh, and yeah, I mean, he kicked everyone's ass that day. Guy's a, a legend. So you you won the chance to get your ass kicked, basically. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it's pretty terrifying to even play. Tom actually lives about four miles away from me, and I still haven't met the guy, but I've spoken to him a few times. The thought of actually being in the same room playing the instrument with him actually terrifies me. And <laughs> you went one further and went on stage with him. Yeah, what an idiot. <laughs> <laughs> How often do you guys get intimidated by other musicians? Every day. 
I've really stopped caring about being the best. Like, and you guys probably had a time in your life as guitarists, we probably all just wanted to be the best. And that kind of drove us, or at least we wanted to be super good at guitar. But I think my niche really is in songwriting. And it took me a while to, to understand that there aren't that many people who can write songs and, and write music, really. I mean, if you look at the wealth of, you know, the Olympic level athlete kind of level guitar players who are just shredding like like i'll never I've, I've, i can admit that now i will never be as good as steven taranto or you know uh rick Grant. like there's crazy shredders and tom quail that doesn't bother me that's not my goal anymore because i know my limitations and i want to put my time into composing because i think it's more beautiful than just just shredding you know do you ever get intimidated by something that someone's written because that's my problem same Ah, that's really interesting. Like whenever I, you know, when I first saw Interstellar, when um, No Time for Caution comes on, where he's trying to dock the spaceship when it's spinning, like I was equally crying for two reasons. One, because of how unbelievably beautiful this piece of music was written, but at the same time, how jealous I was that the situation has been visually <laughs> and audibly <laughs> captured in the most beautiful way. <laughs> And that that's happened multiple times where I've actually had that jealousy. Yeah, it's easy to get jealous, even even angry sometimes, isn't it? When you hear <laughs> yes. someone playing, you're just like, yeah, and that's the thing. I don't think I get that jealous or, or that I don't feel like an inferior complex to people playing really fast anymore. I'm like, great, you did a thing. But, you know, have you got an album? Have you actually written something that means something to someone? Has anyone ever messaged you and gone, you know, that that 300 BPM uh, scale you just played really <laughs> moved me and helped me through my divorce? Like, no way is that going to happen. But... <laughs> But then, yeah, you're right. I mean, sometimes you do hear a piece of music and you're just like, what the hell? The one for me, interesting, you, you mentioned Hans Zimmer there, right? With Interstellar. And for me, it's the stampede scene from The Lion King. The score, oh, that is incredible. Dude, it's, it's out of this world and I can't, I'm trying to understand it. Like I'm listening to it like almost like it's jazz or something because I'm going, hang on, what is he thinking? There are so many interesting ideas, which is another thing which I love about music is not just a great piece of music, but why did the author of that music choose to do that? What were they thinking? What were they, they experiencing when they did it? And I have no idea, but I'm so jealous of that piece of music. <laughs> I understand that entire soundtrack is actually gold. <laughs> One of the best ever, yeah. Yeah, the early 90s Disney, Aladdin, Lion King, they are ingrained in my soul. Yeah. For me, it's the dream is collapsing. <laughs> well, we're not talking about the sing-along stuff, right? We're talking about like the, the scores and stuff. Although actually Aladdin yeah. had some bangers. Let's not let's not beat around the bush here. The dream is collapsing is fucking terrifying. It's uh from inception. Oh, of course. Sorry, I didn't yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like it's what you know. He's where he's falling, right? When he goes to the uh back to the beach. I thought that it was the music at the in the beginning. Oh right, that one. Okay, yeah, that's cool. The where the first dream collapses. That, that piece of music is incredible as well. Yeah. Yeah. And the one that also goes to halftime, that's all I'll say. It goes to halftime. I think that Hans Zimmer will make anybody who wants to write music very sad the moment <laughs> they start trying to figure out <laughs> what the hell this guy did. Yeah, I've gotten that definitely um, where there are certain songs or certain pieces where I don't understand how the person came up with that in the first place. And that's, yeah, I've definitely gotten the the feeling for that way more than from playing. But I used to get it from playing. Like when you get around somebody that was just so much better than you, like as a teenager, I would definitely feel 
the inferiority complex happening. But then, yeah, as I got older, it shifted towards how does this person create something this amazing? What is their brain tapped into? Right now, I feel that way about Igor. I want to know how the fuck that music exists on this planet. (laughs) (laughs) I just want to know. I mean, that is, it's pretty out there music. Yeah. So, Andy, when, like, uh, you think about taking your writing to another level, or do you think about taking your writing to another level, or do you just make more and make more and figure that it will eventually evolve, or are you doing things to push that evolution along a little faster? Uh, I'm always changing. I'm always trying to evolve and do more, which I think is evident with the solo album I released, Never After, because that was a huge step up in terms of orchestration. And it was kind of my my attempt to write a symphonic, kind of it's a symphonic progressive metal record, really. And the amount of layers involved with that was ridiculous. And yeah, I don't I, I ever want to write the same album again. I, I find I've probably got, well, I do have ADHD, but I mean, musical ADHD, where I'm trying to always do something more and trying to, you know, getting quite bored of music. I think I actually find a lot of music very, very dull and uninspiring these days, especially. And I try and do something really colorful and, and different. So what does it mean like in day to day to try to push that evolution? Because like, yeah, we can talk about like trying to do more, wanting to add new elements, but back to kind of what we were talking about before that we're very pattern oriented we don't even know that we're in a box because we're in it. How do you actually, you know, in the day the day when you're sitting there working, push that evolution along? I think it's subconscious mostly, honestly. I, I think that there's a natural evolution um, that I can see in 10 years. Like if I look at the last 10 years of whatever, like six albums I've written, there's such a difference. And I think that's just, we evolve as people and we evolve as musicians and we get better and we know, we, we learn, we discover new things. I mean, I can tell you certain things that I did. I, I always wanted to be a video game composer. Luckily, I've kind of become a video game composer in my late years. I'm jealous. <laughs> I think everyone <laughs> wants to do it. And it's, I've tried my whole life and you know, I've done different soundtracks for games, but only in the last few years have I really actually managed to land games that are actually going to be released, which is amazing. Uh, I met up with a guy who, funnily enough, we're talking about Hans Zimmer, a guy called Will Hyde, who is the nephew of Harry Gregson Williams, who is a Hollywood composer, who's worked on many things with Hans Zimmer. And so Will actually, I was working with him on some BBC documentaries and stuff, and I started to learn the ropes about orchestration from him, which was a level up for me. It was like, oh shit, I had all this stuff in my head, but I didn't really have the tools and I didn't know how to express the that across. And he kind of showed me the ropes with that. And he actually trained with Hans Zimmer. He worked on the Sherlock Holmes soundtrack. So I learned so much from him. And that was that was like a massive level up. I've put that into everything I write. And my composition is get, it always gets more and more complicated and complex as I go. But like you said, what, what am I doing? I don't know. I guess I'm just, I'm having fun and I'm trying, when I get bored of it, I try and level it up. I try and do more. How outrageous can I go? How many strings can I add? Can I add 70 different layers? How many counter melodies can you get away with before it clashes and sounds horrendous? So there's like little games involved in a way to outdo <laughs> myself. It's really interesting now that you raise that. It's funny because I've also, because I've obviously done the same thing where I've wanted to create the most complex, crazy music that's still catchy. Most recently, I've actually been trying to think about stripping it completely down to the most minimalist form possible. 
I don't think I've necessarily achieved it yet, but talking about, you know, the moments like, you know, in those games and also uh, movie soundtracks where it's like two or three notes with hardly any musical information and it hits your soul Mm. and it just sounds so incredibly beautiful. That is, I think, just as difficult to do as the most complex of, you know, structures when it comes to music. And I was wondering if that's something that you've experimented with as well. Yeah, absolutely. But those gems are running out, aren't they? Because the less complicated it is, the easier it is for someone else to find that 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 melody and use it and suddenly it's taken. So there's an argument to suggest that the earlier composers who wrote this those simple melodies, you know, like Beethoven's fifth, you know, it's so simple and it works, or Mozart or whoever. So many melodies, and obviously pop melodies are so simple, sometimes it's just the same note repeated over and over again. I think Chopin actually said, even though Chopin is such a, you know, an opulent piano player and creates these crazy, crazy things that we couldn't even play with eight hands, he still says at the end of the day, I think he's quoted as saying something like, when it boils down, the, not, that's not the actual quote. I'm sure he didn't say when it boils down, but at the core of music, the simpler melody is the more is the more beautiful, is the more effective, and has the more impact. So there is a tug of war going on in my mind where I'm like, is adding millions of layers and counter melodies tugging on the heartstrings as powerfully as, like you said, three notes? Have the three notes all, all been taken? There are some gems still in there, but I think we as guitarists, especially, we have to really restrain ourselves from going, well, we need to chuck on three harmonies onto that now. And now we've got this like really nice iconic sounding melody. Let's just throw all these harmonies on. It's like, sometimes no, maybe just, you know, there are times in my music where I just sit back and I go, no, really don't do that. That's a good melody. Just leave it. But it's difficult, you know? I think that's the most difficult part about writing music is knowing when to abandon it. That can be said about a lot of art. I think every artist faced that problem. Don't when is a project finished? And you end up ruining it. It's never finished. You just keep painting over the painting, yeah. don't you? It's never, it's never <laughs> finished yet. And I had this issue with writing where I was afraid of getting too repetitive. Um, I was afraid of getting boring. So I would switch to the next part too quickly or have to have layers. So I couldn't just let it be the riff. And then I'd hear a band like Opeth that like back in those days, 2004, three, five, six, I never thought they got boring, maybe to some people, but to me that was never boring. And they'd play the same riff without layers like 24 times in a row. I was thinking of Opeth when you said it, because I I can see the chunks of repeated melodies in my head of how many times they did it. But yeah, you're right. They were just good. Yeah, they were just good melodies. And it was awesome. I just had this push and pull tug of war of like just doing that. But how do you know if you're just, if you're underselling yourself or basically selling yourself short by just repeating the riff over and over and over and over. How do you know it really is like that Opeth riff that's just perfect that can be repeated over and over and over? Shouldn't you add a layer? And then it just becomes this fucking mental battle. Yeah, and it becomes a mess sometimes. I think I've got a good theory about this is that music back then, people had time between albums a lot more so than now, which means that you had time to actually think about it. Time to play the riff 28 times before the, so that by the time the next album comes out you're done <laughs> hearing the song no what i mean is is that the song would have been finished they probably had the same 
questions as you. Are we really repeating this because it's a good riff? Because, you know, at that point, they've probably heard it a thousand times. So you get the opportunity then to not listen to it for X amount of time and then think when before you go into the studio, oh, yeah, it works. That's good. Whereas we don't really get that luxury now. There's no time for anything in life anymore, in fact, which is another, probably another topic altogether. I think you know when a, when a, an idea really, like I said, with theory, theory is not my map. It's not my roadmap. It's not my guide. But my guide is if I get goosebumps or if my heart starts to race or if I feel an extreme emotion, that's, that's when I know I've done something that's powerful. And if it's powerful to me as a, as a composer and a listener to my own music, it's going to probably resonate with other people. And that's all you can go off. So if you do end up writing a three note melody that just hits you in the feels that day, you probably want to stick with it and run with it and not go too crazy with it. Question for you on that <laughs> is, have you ever had that feeling and then the next day you've gone to that idea and thought it was complete bollocks. Excuse my very English terminology. <laughs> uh, I'm all for it. <laughs> um, do you not say bollocks, Ale? Nope. <laughs> I listen to you guys say bollocks. <laughs> um, I, I think I, I think I have ideas that are very basic sometimes, and they don't. They sit around in my head for years. I've got two, two. There's two very prominent ones. I thought about this the other day. They've been rattling around in my brain for maybe 15 years. These are ideas that have never made it into a song, but they keep coming back. There's got to be a reason why. So I, a few months ago, I decided I'm going to sing them into my phone and I'm actually going to make an effort to use them. But I mean, there must be a reason why I haven't used them yet. Probably for that reason, they're just quite basic, but they are just so lodged in my brain that they've got to be, yeah, they've got to be on the, on the radar of being these uh, kind of three three note strong melodies. I mean, don't you think that if they've been lodged in your head for that long, that there's a reason? Yeah. I think it's like the whole thing with the Beatles writing music and going, oh, we didn't have anything to record it. If we woke up the next day and remembered the song, it was obviously a hit. So we, it was good enough. Everything else got forgotten. And there's got to be a reason why these melodies are still rattling around in my head saying, Andy, for God's sake, we want to be on the next record. Please use us. And I just haven't found, I haven't found a place for it, but I will, I will have to get them out there now. I definitely found stuff that I wrote like 15 years before something else making their way in like those types of ideas that somehow you just keep coming back to, but can't find a place for them. I've had a few of those over the years and did actually end up finding a place for most of them eventually throughout the years. And they were good. Yeah. I think that's what's happening with me is there's never been an opportunity to really use those ideas. They've never felt like they would fit in the project I'm working on at the time. But eventually, I think when they do find their place, it, it will probably be quite a strong idea that is worth hanging on to. If you, it's in your brain for 15 years, I'd say that's probably correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But like, what role does playing play in your life now? Like, and how much do you actually work on the playing? Because obviously, you need to be able to play at a certain level to be able to do this genre. It doesn't play a role nearly enough or as much as I would like. And that's because of time constraints uh, that we all face, mainly because nobody told me that being a musician would end up being 90% video editing and, <laughs> and, and social media management, which it kills, it kills the mojo and it really does. And that's something I'm really struggling with mentally at the moment and something I would love to outsource, but it comes down to money. It comes down to resources and yeah, it's difficult to find time to practice. I wish... I could tell you I practice seven hours a day. Um, people 
assume I do, I think, but I don't. But I think knowing that you don't, more than anything, I'm wondering, okay, so you don't. You have other things going on, but you have to do some maintenance level just to be able to do what you do. Like, you cannot let it go. No, I think I, I, I because I write so often. I'm, I mean, I write music so much that that guitar is in my hands more more than not, but I'm not necessarily getting better. I've probably plateaued a little bit over the last, I don't know, decade even, you know, um, gone are the days of just practicing crazy sweeps for six hours a day and giving myself RSI and back problems. It's like these days, what's more important to me, because we, we've got so much, we've got a limited amount of time. We've got to, we've got to shoot that in one direction. And most of that kind of focus is for me composing, but that still means I have a guitar in my hand to write demos with. Um, so I am still playing guitar, but I mean, you're absolutely right. I don't really focus. I never sit down and go, you know what? I need to practice today. I need to get better. I need to level up my guitar skills. It's kind of a byproduct of recording the craziness that's in my head. So if an idea is, if I have a crazy, crazy riff that sounds in my head, like I'd never be able to play it on guitar, tough luck. I need to learn it. And that's probably where I do my practice. That makes sense. So you are forcing yourself to keep your level up just by the virtue of having to record the stuff that you write. Yeah, it's, it's the composing side of my brain whipping the performing side of, of my brain or whipping my body and going, yo, we just wrote this crazy riff and you're going to have to now play that. So you better learn it. And I, And this is where actually it's a bit of a problem because sometimes I'll write riffs that are just, you know, almost impossible for me to play. And then I have to just commit to them. And I'll go, this is going to be on the record. I'll learn it later. I can play it well enough to get it down <laughs> on stage. I mean, that's just another, like, that's a future Andy problem. Like, good luck to Andy in the future. But you're actually committing to playing them. Yes. Okay. So that this is a key differentiator between a lot of players these days who write something outside their ability and not commit to learning how to play it. They'll commit to getting it recorded. But that doesn't necessarily mean committing to learning how to play it. But if you are committed to learning how to play it right, that can be your practice time for sure. That can be when you get better. I think that's my practice time, but I think it's more or it's more of like a a quality check. It's like, okay, guy guy comes up with a clipboard and is like, you know, you have to at least be able to play this, you know, to 75% of perfect. And if you can't in the next hour, that's too hard and you'll never be able to play it live. I don't think I'll ever write something I can't, I know I would never be able to play. So it's got to tick a box of, it's got to be at the threshold where I am. And I am actually finding that my brain is is now writing ideas that I can't, that can't play on guitar. And it's frustrating because I'm not at the level I need to be. So it's a limit. My body is a limitation of my mind now when it comes to music. Brain is writing checks that your hands can't cash. Perfect. Yeah, exactly. That happens every writing session, I think. Well, I'm just bringing this up because it's very possible these days to fake guitars. Oh, absolutely. A lot of people out there are doing that, of course. Yeah, and I'm not judging or anything, but uh, if you do have limited time and you do want to get better at guitar, or at least maintain, and you also want to write stuff, you have to figure out how to best use your time. And utilizing the riff recording section of your day as your practice, that is definitely a good way to do it because 
uh, one of the best ways to get better at guitar, and, and we've talked about this a lot before, is to record yourself because you have the truth staring right back at you. There's no way around the truth when you record yourself. So you're forcing yourself to uh, sound as good as possible, be as tight as possible, and, uh, you know, multiple times. Because 100%. You have to double it, triple it, quad it. Oh, whatever. yeah. When you're quad tracking, it's, you, you, you're in all kinds of trouble. Yeah. Also, I think it's wise for guitar players to not learn how to edit themselves. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, it's a pitfall you fall into if you you kind of you start to get drunk with power, don't you? And you start to <laughs> drunk with power. I like that. Uh, yeah, you know, and it's like oh, slip heading and takes over, and suddenly you're actually writing, like you said, you're you're writing checks that you'll never be able to cash, and then suddenly you're an Instagram poser who's just speeding up their videos and all, all that nonsense. <laughs> Pro, Pro Tools is writing checks. Your hands. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Everyone's yeah. writing checks, but you're not. You're not able to cash, and that's the, isn't that the story of the music industry right there in a nutshell? Basically. <laughs> just to go, go on to what you just said about that you get it down for the recording and then you will learn it after, I actually do a different process where I force myself to learn it at that point where I'm recording it. My mind, once it's down, doesn't want to do the work. During the writing? No, during the recording. No, no, I guess what I mean is when... I think what Andy meant was when he's writing something, get it to a certain point where it's good enough to then be able to look at later when you actually record it. Yeah, if, I, if I'm writing a riff and I go, that's unbelievable, but actually, can I play it? Then there'll be a short moment where I kind of spend a bit of time to, to, to make sure it's humanly possible, which sometimes it's not. But yeah, John, I guess you're, you, you'll get it to like 100% accuracy, will you? And then you'll... 90%. 90%, got you. It would be not very tight, but audible if that makes sense yeah i think i'm with you on that i think i'd do the same thing but you're i mean your riffs are crazy good dude oh well thank you i just copy my sugar <laughs> <laughs> no you don't no you don't you you do some special stuff man honestly i do appreciate that thank you i, I posted a, a riff on my instagram two days ago and that was three and a half hours in to trying to play this one part and it's still not close where do you stand on the philosophy of that then? Because, well, I guess the idea is if you finally do get it to a point, do you just wait till you go on tour and then go, shit, now it's crunch time. You know, I have to be able to play this. When it comes to the recording, I need to make sure that I can play it. That's why I spend the time in the writing stage as well. So I know that I have this huge hurdle to climb. Um, there's been a couple of times when it's happened, like um, on the first record, Doxa took me six months to play properly. Wow. Have you ever had um, to back down from a riff because it's just too much and you're just like, damn. Nah, nah you're nah. just too good. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Writing stuff that's outside of your comfort zone is actually a positive thing. I do think that there's a time and a place for the use of technology. There's beautiful things that can be done with punching in. There's a time and place for slip editing. There's a time and place for all of it, I think. I mean, these tools are great. The problem is uh, abuse of the tools, or improper use of the tools. And honestly, I don't, it's not my place to tell any creator of music what they can and can't do or should or shouldn't do. But I will say that by writing stuff that's physically impossible and then slip editing it, if what you're trying to do if your goals are also something along the lines of getting known for your guitar playing, 
and are in a genre where that kind of thing matters, you might be shooting yourself in the foot. That's all. Like you could be causing yourself problems by not actually being able to pull it off. Uh, there's a lot of currency in this world, at least with actually being able to do the things that you recorded. Um, that's a huge level of respect that goes around for bands like that. Like you brought up Mashuga. Well, what is it that everybody loves about Mashuga besides the fact that they're badass? It's the fact that we all know that they can actually do it. Opeth, what is it about them? We all know that they can actually do it. Gojira, we all know they can actually do it. Even Necrophagist, even though the Necrophagist stuff um, we know was recorded in a very slip edity, no by no kind of fashion, we know that they could actually do it. And like this knowledge that these people can actually do it is currency. So I just think new, new players beware. Use all the technology you want, but uh, when the crowd starts to think that you can't actually do it, it causes you problems. And uh, and we know, for example, with our friend Charles Caswell, who can do all the fucking insane shit he puts out there, a lot of people believe for a long time he couldn't because it sounded so crazy and so unrealistic. And it's such an issue for heavy music listeners if they think something's fake that he had to do extra work. This is so stupid, but he had to do extra work just to show people that, yeah, A, his music is fucking nuts, and B, he can actually play it, and C, go fuck yourself. But it <laughs> sucks that he even had to do that, but I'm just saying, but that is reality in these heavy music genres. The audience wants to believe that you can actually do these things. Yeah, there's almost a cancel, like cancel culture of guitarists at one point last year or year before, on Instagram, it was like all these, yeah. you know, everyone's being called out for for miming or whatever. And suddenly there was like a resurgence of people just going to camera phone, like audio, where it's just, there's no amp, there's nothing. It's just, you can hear the strings, so therefore it must be real. And it changed the game a little bit. Well, that's what Charles had to do with his songs was upload camera audio versions. And then everybody was like, okay, you're absolutely insane at guitar. I believe it. Yeah. I think it's actually not necessarily a bad thing that that had to happen. The expectations are too high. The, there was an unexpected expectation because obviously, you know, people hear records that are edited within an inch of their life and assume that that's how people play when it's not real life. About 0.5% of the entire musicians on the planet can play like that. Mm. You know, um, Mike Malian on drums, it's obscene. It sounds like he's playing with triggers when he doesn't. Same with Alex Rudinger. Um, but when it comes to guitar players, like no one can play as tight as a computer. It's it's impossible. There's not one person in the world that can do that. Yeah. And this feeds into like, I mean, the whole, you know, the auto-tune debate and even timing, even quantizing to the grid, you know, how, how close to the grid do you go with drums and with everything? And there is a, a human nature that's being lost from music by going too tight. I've, I'm at fault too. I've been at fault where I've gone slam everything to the grid. Everything needs to be super, 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 super tight. And I started to realize that actually quad tracking a lot of the riffs I've written for, for albums I've released. But you know what's weird to me about that debate? And I'm someone that likes natural sounding records, but you know what's weird to me about the debate of people saying that it takes out the human element, etc. Have you ever heard what those AI music generators sound like? Yeah. 
It's witchcraft. But they don't sound anything like those bands that are hyper edited. Those AI music generators sound like fucking gibberish. <laughs> Basically, when I listen to this hyper polished metal that people say sounds quote unquote inhuman, I think I think of a finely tuned car or something like something where every last little detail is just perfected. But who did that? A human that is totally the human element because listen to what happens when you let a computer write the music. It sounds like weird gibberish shit. <laughs> so I'm just saying, like, I actually think that that hyper perfect stuff is the, is part of the human element. Right. So you hear a human element to polish. Yes, because it's only humans could get it like that. So it's humans that did that. It's humans that are using tools that humans made in order to get it that way. Now, it's not necessarily my artistic preference, but I don't agree that the human element's being taken out because I think all it is is the human element. Sure. I think for me where it, where it comes into play is, let's say, quad tracking. If I record four guitars super tight, uh, they all have to match each each other and they have to be absolutely perfect as if you know as if a robot's playing it um and i'll do that and i'll make it super tight and in the past i've done that and then listen back and i've gone well that doesn't have any character it doesn't have any soul it's the right notes it's in the right time but where were the little inflections where was the little grace of the pick that gave it just that little bit of character a little bit of edge and i think there's you can and i certainly have done it where you you overdo it and to the point where it's so sterile it just doesn't doesn't sound like I've actually played that riff anymore. Sounds like Guitar Pro MIDI. And that's why I started to go back to just double tracking instead of quad tracking, because you can be just not less tight. You're still playing it absolutely perfect. Like my 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 threshold for being tight is like it's super tight. I, I play, I don't allow anything through the net that's not a hundred percent tight. But if you only double track rhythm guitar, it allows a bit more wiggle room to like just bend a string a little bit more and add that little bit of more emotion and character or maybe a little half pinch here and there where otherwise with four guitars it was like oh what did that guy just do <laughs> what did <laughs> what did the the second guitar player on the left hand side of the stage do exactly exactly <laughs> what was he thinking when he tried to show off with that little cheeky bend you know but when it's just a left and a right there's i don't know there's a more human quality to it i feel i do feel that that's lacking in a lot of music these days that kind of the, the mistakes. A performance from a real human, but I'm obviously contradicting myself in the, because I, I seek perfection like everyone else does. I go overboard to make things sound absolutely perfect. It's knowing which mistakes to leave in. It almost is, isn't it? And I think you get away with it with lead guitar. So yeah, get the, get the rhythm guitar down super, super, super perfect. Then have fun with lead guitar. It doesn't matter if that lead guitar is slightly lazy and behind the beat. Because it's as long as it's expressive, you're hitting the right notes. As long as it's not out of tune, I'll leave it out of tune. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if it if it works, like that's the problem. I think the thing that we're just so subsidized, not subsidized. What's the right? Um, I can't think of the word right now. Where conditioned? I think you might be saying that's probably, we're conditioned yeah. to perfection, right? And we hear all these records where you know the pro. Let's call it the Pro Tools age, where everything's perfect and no one wants to spend eighteen months in the studio to re-record every song five, six, seven times <laughs> or do 98 mixes of Billy Jean, you know, <laughs> or however many it was. And then they went with mix two 
<laughs> yes. Yeah. Like no one has the time nor the financial capacity to do something like that anymore. Where's the middle ground now? You used to be able to have the time, but now you don't have the time, but you've got the resources to make it as tight as possible. So the correct point is somewhere in the middle. Yeah. And we've gone from someone putting the record scratchy thing going like, this is t- it's going, we're recording, and we're talking like 1950s, sing it in one take. And they would, this poor woman would sing this song 90 times until her voice blows out. And like you said, they'll go with take number three because it had, you know, that was kind of the most in tune. Had the sauce. Yeah, right. Now look at the difference. We've got people like, you know, Justin Bieber or whatever. And I'm not saying Justin Bieber is, is, is not a credible musician because I, well, I don't know that for sure, but whatever. I'm not trying to shit on Justin Bieber because I don't, I don't honestly don't care, but recording one <laughs> syllable at a time with vocals. I heard even Chris Cornell did that actually. Really? So, I mean, look at the difference. Reason I'm saying, reason I'm saying that is because we all know Chris Cornell is a vocal God. So yeah, he did that too. Yeah. I mean, I'm just, I'm just as a point of reference, like going from trying to do it all in one take to just nailing a syllable at a time with this crazy quest for perfection. I mean, it's such a different approach to recording. And the new kids on the block coming in, the new people who, you know, the young kids, uh, they'd never had to do it the way all of us would have done it in the early days. I had like some eight track Fostex thing. I would record everything in one take on guitar. Then I would jump on the drum kit with two shitty mics and, uh, and try and do the whole song in one take. We kind of have experienced that. And now we probably do it a much more modern way. But the new kids have never really had to do it that way. So... Is there a big danger now that they come into the game and go, oh, cool. So we it's one note at a time then, you know, record one note of a, a solo at a time. Danger of what, I guess? Of raising the expectation of what guitarists can do and for removing any kind of credibility as a performer, I suppose. I guess the way that I would see it is that the role has just been reversed. Like we used to spend all the time getting to that perfect level to record in. Now you can record in and then practice and then go play it live. Whereas it was the other way around. It's kind of just the pieces have just moved around a little bit. Yeah, I I still think that the bands that pull it off live are the ones that are going to have the most currency. Agreed. Okay, so one thing is, depends on your market, right? If your market is people that don't make music, I mean... They won't be able to tell. Yeah. They won't be able to tell nor care. If they're just listening to a bunch of backing tracks live, I don't think it even crosses their mind. Like, I don't think it fucking matters. Uh, So you got to know, like, who you're making this for. But, like, again, if you're making music for this crowd of people that actually do care about this sort of thing, then no matter how the record is made, when it comes down to playing live, you'll be judged on that, I think. Yeah, and it gets worse when... If you're writing more difficult stuff, more complex stuff, which is hard to play, you're probably pandering to an audience of the people who stand at the back of the hall with their arms crossed, really scrutinizing every note you play. That's that's your crowd now. So, so okay. So I think the danger in that is worrying too much about what other people think. Okay, so we're mammals and we're wired to care about what other people think. So anyone who says that they don't care... They're lying, but there's a healthy amount of it. And I think that musicians caring too much what other musicians think is very, very dangerous. And I'm going to say that it's actually dangerous on a career level. I'll tell you guys after this, but like I can think of one band, for instance, that uh, 
that my band used to tour with. They were one of the MySpace deathcore bands that got fucking huge on MySpace. And then when we went on tour with them and they were selling 1,500 seat places before their first album even came out, doing like 20 or 30 grand a night in merch. This is fucking insane. And they're like 17 years old, fucking crushing it. Then their album comes out and they get even bigger. And uh, this whole time they have this uh, thing in their head that they're not true death metal. They're afraid of what the cross-armed dudes think of them. They're afraid of what like the, you know, the extreme people think of them. And so they started to take their sound in a more technical death metal direction, forgetting what it is that made them popular in the first place. Not because this was their artistic vision, is because they were worrying about what other people thought of them. They just weren't that great at technical death metal. The crowd abandoned them and they disappeared. I've seen that sort of thing happen quite a few times. Uh, that's probably the most, the first one that comes to mind. But they really went in this direction because they were super scared of what other people thought of them and completely dropped a hand grenade on their own career as a result. So I do think there's a danger in that. Like I've seen the danger in that. I think that's a, a bad thing. However, the good side is drummers like Alex Rudinger only exist because of that unrealistic level that things were edited to because uh, his generation of drummers grew up hearing edited drums, thinking that they were real. And so they just learned to play like that and took it even further. So that's like the positive side is the bar getting raised. Yeah, technology has raised like raised the bar for for everyone in a in a positive light in that case. I mean, it depends. Yes, that's positive, but then the the negative side of it is the unrealistic expectation, but that really not necessarily comes from the technology, it comes from abuse of the technology. It comes from abuse of miming to something later that you couldn't play or speeding up a video. And that's when we had this big explosion of Instagram guitarists being called out for it because people don't like to be cheated. People don't like to feel like they've been lied to. And as soon as you're found out, you're, you're done, really, in a way. I mean, if you, you could actually say, I didn't play the guitars, then no one would have cared. Indeed. The music's good. Like, I don't care if we played it or not. This sounds wicked. But because you went out there, yeah, and said you did it. If you went out there, did a video of yourself playing it, that's the problem. I write symphonic metal, so I write big orchestral parts, right? But I didn't play those violins. <laughs> now, if I put up an Instagram video of me dancing around the room with a violin to those melodies, people are going to start asking questions. First of all, why are you dancing around with a violin? Well, please do it. This, this is the song <laughs> in my head that's happening right now that I'm writing. I think my overactive mind is, is starting to write an Irish jig or something. But no, it's, it's <laughs> you know, if you say, oh, I programmed this stuff, I, I, they'll go, oh, wow, what an amazing composer. He managed to arrange this whole piece, you know, but I, there's, I never pretend to be, I don't play violin. I don't pretend to be that. I do claim to be a guitar player, so I, I do have to play my parts. And that's something I make sure I can do because of this reason and because it would feel wrong to put something out that I can't actually play. I mean, that just would be wrong, I think. But every other instrument, free, you know, it's free reign. I will write things that violinists, even the best violin player in the world can't play because why not? It's, I'm not a violin player, so I can, I can do that. <laughs> I'm God, you know, in, in Cubase, I'm God. But when I pick up the guitar, I, I'm, I'm a mortal man, you know? I think that 
even if you're a guitar player, if you had just said, I didn't play any of this, I hired this person to play. So all you're hearing this person, people would accept that too. If you said, I programmed the guitars, some people might be like, fuck that. But I think overall, if it was cool, they'd accept it. I don't think that's the case, actually, because if you listen to Anoop Sastry's stuff, it is programmed guitars. Yeah, I think most people would accept it. No one cares because the music's good. Yep. Anoop still played the drums and it's still his vision. It's just that he did, like, I think he actually plays the guitar in, but plays it one or a couple of notes at a time and then does the thing. I found it interesting when I released my solo album that I programmed bass for it. And a few people asked about the bass and I was straight up. I was like, oh yeah, I programmed the bass. Um, And there's reasons for it. And I did it, and I, I don't consider that to be a problem. I, I like the sound of, of what I came up with, and it fits, and it works, and that's how I worked. And a couple of comments is like, oh, I'm kind of disappointed you did that, that you should have hired a bass player, or you should have played bass yourself. So it was interesting to discover that. That's what I'm talking about. There there will always be those. But I think overall, if you're upfront about what you did, people will accept it if it's good. Yeah. And that's why I don't pretend that I did play those bass parts because, I mean, I could have. I could quite, I was quite capable of doing it, but I'm not going to lie to you and say I, I did because I didn't. Same with program drums. I mean, there are bands out there that program the drums on their album and although they'll, they'll go out and say it's a real drummer. <laughs> I mean, you're going to get found out eventually. People will be disappointed. No one will care, though, if you tell the truth. Like Meshuga, Fear Factory, nobody cared. There's great albums out there with program drums, you know? Just be upfront about that, you know. Catch 33, my sugar. I'm pretty sure that's programmed. That's what I'm saying. I think it's that one. And it's one of the best. Who cares it was programmed? We've seen Thomas play it live. We know that Thomas can play it. Where do you think the line is? You think the line is just that? We got to know that the player can actually do it the end. If we're cool with that, if we know that, all's good. Yeah, the line is how you present it. So we know EDM exists electronic dance music it exists people use loops it's a thing now metal is obviously being pushed in that direction production wise in in many ways uh kick drum now doesn't sound like a kick drum it, it has to be sampled to sound to, to cut through it as if it's almost like a dance kick there's many different things like that but at the end of the day if you present it as a metal band playing you better back it up with a metal band playing it if you present it as yo i'm made some loops and I made this kind of dance track and it sounds good. People are going to love it, but don't pretend that that's real guitar on there if it isn't because people will feel like they've been lied to. Yeah. I, I think that it's interesting that there's a, an audience that gives a shit about this stuff because, <laughs> you know, because you, you go see a movie, nothing you're seeing is real. But that's how it's presented, isn't it? They've not told you that it's not real. But you know it's not real. There's some blurred lines for sure. I, I know what you mean here because, you know, you go to a theater stage show and you see these, you know, thespian actors giving it their all and you're like, yeah, that was that was exhilarating experience, great actors, and there was no CGI involved. And then you go to the cinema and you see Gollum come on the screen. Why are we not feeling as if we were kind of betrayed there? I guess because there's an expectation now for, I don't know, is that is that just... Is, are there parallels to be drawn to, to mixing where you go and put like a stereo delay on something? Is that, is that the CGI of, of, of mixing? I don't know. Well, there are a lot of people who don't like those big summer CGI filled movies because they feel like they're watching a cartoon <laughs> or they're watching a video game. That's why I'm not really into the Marvel. Like, first of all, I know that the best CGI is the kind you don't even see. It's all over 
every movie, but I think the overt CGI that you see in like the Marvel movies, like, so I personally have a hard time with those just because I feel like I'm watching a cutscene from a video game and I just can't get into it. And I think it's a similar sort of thing. Speaking of video games, yeah, Ale, has anyone ever said to you that you sound exactly like Master Chief from the Halo series? No, <laughs> but I'll take it. Your voice has a resonance I can't even comprehend. Like, it's beautiful. It's like so well, scooped. You. It's like naturally scooped. I, I would love to know what's on your plugin chain, but I'm guessing you just sound like that in real life. No, there's nothing on my plugin chain. I'm just using the Roadcaster. It's amazing. The Roadcaster is a beautiful box, basically. Uh, no, nothing. Well, thank you, though. Um, <laughs> and I don't have anything against video game cutscenes. They're really, really cool in the context of a video game. But in the context of a movie, it feels very strange. Like, I can't emotionally commit to what's going on in front of me. Yeah, it's lost. <laughs> but is that because it's lost the human quality then? Is that because it's... Probably. Then you like edited drums and edited to... You said it's still human. It's just a, an expansion. I mean, humans made CGI, right? It's humans who are sitting there polishing that stuff. It's not machines that may, that are making these movies. Like, it's not robots making it for humans. It's humans. Yeah, I get that. It's still art. I mean, if you do this, if you make CGI, it's art. Absolutely. Really. So there is probably a human element in there. But there's, but there's something about that style of art that I have a hard time connecting with. And I guess it's the same in music. If I feel like I'm watching something artificial, I have a hard time, which is weird because I like Christopher Nolan movies and none of that shit's real, yeah. <laughs> but it doesn't feel artificial. It's so weird. Yeah. The word artificial, I think is, is the buzzword then that feeling of something just being tacky, not being credible, not being real, not being as a feeling that you're not getting an authentic thing, you're not getting an authentic kind of connection maybe. Yeah, even with the understanding that nothing I'm seeing is real. Like, they, no one actually went into a black hole. No, <laughs> no one's running around in other people's dreams. Do you, know, do you know what's funny? The first, like, moment that I got this feeling, because I feel the same way too. I'm not the hugest Marvel fan. Like, I appreciate them, but I don't go out my way to watch them. But have you guys seen Die Hard 4? Does he jump on a chopper or jump on a play or some shit <laughs> the one God where he's it. sliding yeah where yes. he's sliding down the, the the yeah and i i actually just laughed out loud during that scene as well because it was funny <laughs> i did it was ridiculous yeah what happened it's where he's in the you know the massive truck towards the end it's spiraling round. he's getting fired at by the the fighter jet and then everything explodes he slides down the road as it's toppling and he well obviously He's still there. <laughs> it's Bruce Willis, man. Come on. Exactly. You can take that. <laughs> you can take anything. I do really like that movie, though. But that did that moment did make me just crack up laughing because it was too ridiculous. Okay, but then Fast and Furious movies do great with people. So, again, I think it's down to the audience, right? Stylistic choices. Yeah, who is the audience you're making something for? Everything we're talking about with authenticity is cool, but... I think it's important to recognize also for you know, people listening that know your audience and know your own art. If like your own art is to make things that are sound completely constructed and you're going for an audience that doesn't give a fuck about that sort of thing. Great. Awesome. There's lots of bands who have great careers making 
quote unquote artificial sounding music for audiences that don't care. And that's fine. So just know yourself and do what you're comfortable with. Same with, you know, Fast and the Furious movies. It doesn't seem to hurt them at all that there's absolutely nothing believable about them. Just because I don't get into it doesn't mean shit. But, uh, but I think that what's important is if you don't know your audience, you don't know yourself, that could lead to trouble, I think. Yeah, and I guess that's what happened to the band you were talking about. Yes, that's exactly what happened to the band. There was a certain level of expectation from that fan base and it wasn't met. And that was goodbye to that band, basically, yeah. Exactly. They could have kept making that music that they were known for and probably been fine. I mean, yeah, they would have been. I know what band you're talking about, by the way. Obviously, I won't name it, but they, you know, there's other bands that were in that scene that are still going now that are doing great. Yep. From sticking to their guns. Exactly. All right. Well, Andy, I think this is a good place to end the episode. I want to thank you for taking the time to hang out with us. I know it's like four o'clock in the morning for you or something like that. (laughs) 2.30, I think. Yeah. (laughs) Sorry. Appreciate you taking the time, man. Uh, It's my pleasure. I appreciate chatting to you guys. Really awesome. Thanks for having me on. Yeah. Likewise. Anytime. I just got to say, I was really, really impressed when I hired Andy to write that theme. And from checking out King of the Riff and also hiring other writers in the past, I've noticed that, and there really are some people who know how to follow directions and give you something that's awesome, but also follows the specific direction. And some people who just do not get it. Your brief, Randy, as well, as you were talking about it, it was actually quite difficult like I was trying to visualize in my head, you want a European sound that doesn't sound European. <laughs> okay, okay. So hang on, let me let me see here. That it wasn't even that complicated of a brief. <laughs> Here's the brief. What we need musically are an intro, an outro, and a middle bed that could potentially be looped. I'm thinking something not as aggressive and driving as the URM podcast, but more in your natural composition wheelhouse mellow death-ish, or a Scott, some kind of almost subtle melody going on, European style more than American, and not too busy or distracting for the listener. A metal song that sounds like it could have either clean or harsh vocals, but this is kind of your natural writing style, which I really enjoy, so I think wouldn't be a far stretch from what you do. I am not really looking for genty style or anything like that either. That's funny. That's why you didn't ask me. Because I am gent. (laughs) All right. So basically neo tech death kind of metal, but not too distracting. And not not too heavy either. Okay. That's pretty difficult to do. Yeah. Not too aggressive, but just right. Okay. I'm trying to imagine what that is because a lot of tech death to me is firstly very busy and also really aggressive and really in your face. So... Interesting. Okay. So he did the perfect job. And also, keep in mind, it had to be simple enough for someone to be speaking over. (laughs) All of these things had to be going on at the same time. And literally, the first thing he sent was it. It was perfect. It's really interesting. I think that writing to a brief is a skill set that needs to be learned. A lot of guitar players I've noticed over the years just write. They don't really write to a an image or a video or a phrase or a word or anything like that. They just write. And I think that trying to convey music to 
a brief of sort requires time to understand what it is exactly that you're trying to do to portray that particular emotion. Yeah. Takes musical maturity. Yeah. And understanding basically of yeah. years of practice of listening to the way that other things have, you know, shown through music by, I guess, watching lots of films is what helped me. Watching lots of films helped me and uh, also learning a bunch of different kinds of music helped. But I was actually never really that great oh, at sure. writing to other people's briefs. So I don't know what I'm talking about. Really? Yeah. Interesting. I would have thought you would have been, you know, if we go back to Darth style, I'd say you'd be all about it. Yeah. Just into doing my own thing. That's what it was. I. <laughs> yeah. Always into doing my own thing. But uh, King of the Riff, man, King of the Riff is a way for people to actually develop these skills and potentially get hired by people like me. For sure. I mean, with King of the Riff, we go through multiple different styles of briefs as well. It's everything from writing like a particular artist to writing through to theme songs based on a, a film or we did one on anime, which has its own set of sort of rules that you follow as well. If you listen to a lot of anime soundtracks, all the way through to writing in particular keys, writing with a certain set of notes minimally we've had we've had loads of variance levels of briefs and some people repeat names keep coming up and they keep smashing it as well because they know what they're doing they know what they're doing or they've worked out what they're doing from doing king of the rift month in and month out and exploring different ways to write music i think that's the most important element of king of the rift it just gives everyone a different sort of perspective on how they can approach writing music for themselves and win some sick prizes and win some really sick prizes. Yeah, guitars, amps, pedals, plugins, drum packs, you name it, we've had it. All right, Brown, it's been a pleasure. Go to riffhard.com, get on King of the Riff. See you next week. See you next week, mate. Thanks for listening to the Riff Hard Podcast. We'll see you next week. <laughs>